Father, we live in such a wicked world, and, and uh, uh, you know that all too well. And just as your word says in, in 1 John, Lord, that this whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. And, and Lord, uh, there are so many deceivers who have gone out in the world. We see deceivers in every walk of life. We see it in the political arena. We see it at our workplaces, Lord. We, in some homes, we see that. It's just the world is full of deceit, and it's even permeated the church, Lord. And, and um, uh, there are all sorts of antichrists there who, who preach a different Christ from the Christ that, that we know from studying your word and from from the affirmation we get from your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I just ask you today to show us how to address these antichrists when, when they come a-calling to our homes or to our workplaces, to our churches. Just how do we deal with these people, Lord? And, and um, Lord, we just ask that uh, you teach us this lesson and these other lessons that you would teach us uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We just ask that in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it wasn't too long after I got saved, a couple of years after I got saved. I mean, the first couple of years after I got saved, I got to tell you, man, I was in, in, I was reading commentaries. I read the Bible through about four times. I mean, I was just so excited about being in the Word, and I thought I pretty much knew everything, kind of like today, you know. Uh, I, I haven't changed much, but I, I learned a lesson one day because these two guys knocked on my door. And they knocked on my door, and they were very friendly, and, and uh, they told me that they were out uh, canvassing the neighborhood with the good news about Jesus Christ. And I said, well, that's great. I said, I'm a Christian too. And they said, well, uh, they said, what church do you belong to? I said, well, I'll go to Calvary Chapel of Lafayette. I said, where do y'all go? They said, well, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said to myself, well, you know what? I'm about to convert you. <laughs> so I invited them into my home, and... And uh, we sat down at the, at, at the, on the living room couch and we began to discuss theology and they would ask me theological questions and I would give them these answers and they would smile and, and uh, with approval and say, man, you know your Bible pretty well. And they said, well, tell us about your Christology. What do you believe about Christ? I said, well, I, you know, and I'd had this canned answer. I'd heard all Charles Stanley and Chuck Smith and all of these people give their answers about who Christ was. And so I had this canned answer and I said, well, Christ is uh, the Son of God. He's the second pers person of the Trinity. He's co-equal with the Father. And they said, well, I hate to tell you, but you're wrong about that. And I said, well, I don't think I'm wrong. And they said, no, you're wrong about that. Let me show you. So they took me to the Gospel of John. And in the first chapter of John, the first few verses there, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they said, do you notice there that there's not, in the Greek, of course we didn't have a Greek text, but they said if you look in the Greek, the definite article is not there. And so whenever the definite article is not there in Greek, then you, you have to assume it's a something, a God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was a God. And I said, oh, whoa, you know, I kind of backed up. I mean, I'd never heard that before. And then they said, well, let me, let's take you now to the book of Colossians and go to Colossians chapter 1 and look down at verse number 18. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18, it says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And they said, you see there that he was born. That 
that God sees him as born, as a created being. He was created somewhere back in eternity. He hasn't always existed. If he's born, then he has not always existed. And I tell you what, it kind of rattled my theological cage. And so I said, man, I got to give this some thought. And I said, I really, you know, I really don't feel that that's right. I said, I need to look at this. I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm just sorry. I don't want to go on with this conversation anymore. Get out of my house. I didn't say it like that. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I, they left. They left on, and they said, we'd like to come back, and, and we want to bring one of our elders with us. And uh, we believe we can convince you that what we're teaching is right. And I said, well, bring him on. And man, I, that's when I went and I started doing a study on the deity of Christ. I bought me a copy of The Kingdom of Cults by Walter Martin. If you ever want to read about the cults and get a, get a, get a copy of that. And I, I saw in The Kingdom of Cults where firstborn means, is the Greek word prototokos, which means first imminent over all creation, not firstborn over all creation. That's the, that's the way the English text translates it, the King James translates it, but it means preeminent over all creation. Like the firstborn son in the Jewish culture was preeminent over the inheritance. That's, that's what the message was in that, in that verse. And then uh, I, noted, I also saw where uh, Walter Martin says in, in the Greek, I hadn't studied Greek at that point, but in the Greek you often have a uh, noun without a definite article. So you can't say because it doesn't have the definite article that it is a something. It can be the something. And in this case, in the context, it certainly is the God. And so uh, I was ready to talk to them about that. And then I studied every passage I could on the deity of Christ. So when they came back, I was loaded for bear. And I started asking them questions. And I asked them in Isaiah 9 when it says, Speaking of the Messiah, it speaks of everlasting father. I said, how can, it, how can it say that? Well, they had a can't answer for that. And I asked him in, when Jesus said in John 10, I and the father are one. I said, how could he say that if he's not equal to the father? And they had a can't answer for that. And, and they had heard all of those little questions. Well, I had come up with some questions that they hadn't heard before. Like one, I asked them, I said, I said, who raised, I, I just kind of set a trap for him. I said, who raised Jesus from the dead. They said, the, the Jehovah, God, of course, Jehovah God raised Jesus from the dead. I said, well, then why did Jesus say to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and he was referring to his body, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And all of a sudden, their faces looked blank. And they said, we're going to have to get somebody else. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah. <laughs> And so they left, and they said, we're going to bring one of our superior elders, I think they called him. We're going to bring him, and he's going to come with us, and he's going to come uh, talk to you. And so I said, come on, bring him on. So I studied even more. And a couple of weeks later, sure enough, I got a knock on the door, and there was one of these Jehovah's Witnesses, and this big, tall, very handsome black man, he was about 6'5", very articulate. And him and I started bantering over some of the theology. And Eli had gone to the door with me, and he was looking up at this guy. And I was looking up at this guy. And I mean, he was a very powerful man, a very powerful speaker. And all of a sudden, I noticed Eli had run back into his room, 
and he was digging into his toy box. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there talking to this guy, and we're talking about, back and forth about theology, and Eli comes up, and he's got a basketball in his hand. And he reaches up to the guy and goes like this. <laughs> now, and the guy pushed the basketball down, and he went <laughs> like this again. And Eli wasn't making a racial slur or anything. I know what was going on in his little mind. He was two years old. We had been watching the NBA playoffs. We didn't watch much TV back then, but we were watching the NBA playoffs. It was that great series between Michael Jordan uh, of the Bulls and uh, Charles Barkley. Eli called him Charles Broccoli. Charles Broccoli of, of the Suns, and they were having this great, NBA series, and they were working their magic, and Eli had watched them play, and he was absolutely amazed. And he had seen me at the park play and shoot, and one thing he had learned is that white men can't jump, and they can't play basketball. And so when he saw this guy, I mean, he just wanted to, wanted to see what he could do. Well, I think it kind of offended the guy, and the guy left kind of abruptly. And I thought about it. You know what? Eli had done for me unwittingly what I should have done myself when those Jehovah's Witnesses first came to my home. I should have turned them away. I should have sent, very kindly sent them away. Is that what we're supposed to do? That's exactly what John is going to tell us that we're supposed to do in this little book of 2 John. But before we get started in it, you know, I'd like to introduce a book because uh, so we, we know who the author is. I mean, actually, when you read 2 John, 3 John, and 1 John, the author is not given. So there's a little confusion there as to who the author is. But it's amazing to me that scholars don't debate the, John as the author of, of 1 and 2 and 3 John. And the reason is there's plenty of internal evidence and there's plenty of external evidence that he wrote these books. The external evidence is all the early so-called church fathers in their writings attribute 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to the Apostle John. So there's no argument over, over the early fathers who wrote it. The people who lived closest to his day, they believe that John wrote 1st, uh, 2nd, and 3rd John. Also, uh, the internal evidence definitely speaks of John. I, I mentioned this when we did our study in 1 John. If you ever take Greek, you're going to love to study, translate 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the Gospel of John because it is the easiest and smoothest Greek in all the New Testament. And you can spot it as John's because it's very simplistic Greek. I mean, a, a, a basic, uh, I mean, a beginning Greek student can translate all three, all four of those books. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. So the Greek is identical. And also, you'll see today, the theme is identical. John loves to talk about what? What does he love to talk about? What's that word? Love. He loves to talk about love, and he loves to talk about truth. And we'll see that theme even in this little bitty epistle here in uh, the second epistle of John. Now, he probably wrote this shortly before his death. John was about 100 years old at this point, and he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And so he probably wrote it from Ephesus around 100 A.D. Uh, so anyway, that's just a little introduction. Let's go to 2 John and pick up there in verse number 1. 
He says in verse number one, he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also those who have known the truth. Now, what's he call himself there? He calls himself the elder. He was like the elder statesman. That word elder is the Greek word presbytos, from which we get our uh, English word presbyterian. And it's the word that Paul uses in Titus and Peter uses in 1 Peter to refer to a pastor. And so he's like the, like the elder pastor. El, the, the word uh, presbytos simply means, in, in the simplest of Greek, uh, it means an older person. And so he was an older person. And he was like the elder statesman. I mean, the Billy Graham of his day. And you can see why. He was the last of, he was probably the last of the apostles who was still alive. And so he had great respect throughout Christendom at that point. And so he says, the elder, he calls himself the elder. And look who he writes to. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, that's an interesting uh, title that he gives to whoever he's writing to. Now, who's he writing to there? I have, some people would say that he was writing to a specific lady uh, uh, and her children, but I don't think so. I think he's writing to a specific church, to, a, to somebody, uh, to a specific church there in that area and the children that had been produced by that church. And the reason I think that, because if you look in 2 John and you look at the very last verse, he closes the verse by speaking of the church of Ephesus as follows. He says in verse number 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. So he uses that elect woman as a picture or a metaphor of the church. And that makes sense because who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ made up of the elect. Who are the elect? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That makes us the elect. How do you get to be the elect? Well, you've got to choose Christ in order to be part of the elect. Paul says in the same context, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 13, he says, having believed, we were sealed with the Spirit. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not one of the elect. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are one of the elect. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, what you're going to find out is you're going to know that you've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I know I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You know, and I bet you do too. Because if you're a born-again believer, didn't some things happen to you that were very positive before you got saved? Some miraculous things where God bailed you out of some kind of difficulty, probably on several occasions. Because you know why he was doing that for you? Because you were one of his elect. He had chosen you before the foundation of the world. You hadn't chosen him yet, but when you chose him, you became one of the elect. And so he is writing to the elect lady and her children. And listen to what he says to her. He says, whom I love, now watch this, in truth. I love in truth. And not only I, but also those who have known the truth. I mean, all those who have been told the truth uh, love this elect lady. In that day, he's speaking of the other churches, those whom I love in truth, but not only I, but also those who have known the truth. Now, what's he mean by that? Whom I love in truth. Well, the Twin Towers 
of Christianity are what? Their truth and love. They go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have love without truth, and you can't have truth without love. Just look at some churches. There are churches. Look at our church. There are some churches that have lots of truth, but very little love. Or they have lots of love, or phileo love, brotherly love, but there's not much truth. I like to think here at Calvary Chapel that we have both, that we have love for one another and that we have truth. But you can only have truth, you can only love God, and you can only love people the way God wants you to love people if you know the truth of God. And so they go together. And, and the truth is what binds us together, and it binds us together forever. You know that we're bound together forever in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of this word? Look at verse number 2. He says, because of the truth which abides in us, and will be with us forever. Now, who is the truth? Jesus Christ is the truth. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And, and it's the truth about Jesus Christ that binds us together for all times. It binds us together in love. And John is saying that our two churches are bound together in love forever because of the truth about Jesus Christ. You and I are bound together in truth. Do you realize we're also bound together with the Apostle John in truth? You know what binds us? To, when you see the Apostle John, he's not going to be a total stranger to you. You've read his epistles. You know his heart. You know the truth that he was preaching. And it binds us together. It binds us with that church way back in the first century. And it, and it binds us uh, together with all sorts of people throughout all the centuries. You know, I love to read men like Martin Luther. Read Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. You read his commentary on Romans, and you, you, the truth is going to be the same truth that's in your heart. And, and when you read that, it's going to be almost like he's sitting there as a friend teaching you about Romans. I mean, I like to listen, read Spurgeon and, and read his commentary on the Psalms. And, and, and it's almost like I know Spurgeon. I read morning and evening. I look at his devotional almost every day. And it's almost like we're good friends because we're bound together in truth. G. Campbell Morgan, I mentioned him earlier. All sorts of men and women throughout history that we're bound together, for, bound together in because we're part of the same truth. We're in the same truth. We're all in Jesus Christ. Now, if it's truth that binds us together, that begs the question, why is there so much division in the church? Why is there so much division among believers? And why are there so many cults and false religions out there? Well, I mean, the answer is obvious because many false teachers have gone out misinterpreting the word. They're what John calls antichrist. And you can mark this down. You can mark it down. Any church or any denomination that neglects the teaching of the word and begins to make cultural norms or, and traditions of, the men, of men trump the teachings of the word 
any church that does that is going to drift away from truth. They're going to drift away from the Lord, and they're going to become apostate. But, hey, we don't have to worry about that, do we, if we're born-again believers? Because what did John tell us in 1 John chapter 2? He told us that we have an anointing, and we know all things. And if you go into a church where you're hearing apostasy, you're going to know it when you hear that apostasy, and what do you do? If you start hearing apostasy in here, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to pack up and leave. Because you want to be in a church that teaches the truth, a church where, where, where we're bound together in truth and in love. And if you do, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. Because look at what he says. He says in verse number three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in what? In truth and in love. And, and John doesn't say, look at that verse again. He doesn't say, I hope you have grace, mercy, and peace, or you might have grace and mercy and peace. He says you will have grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, if you're in truth and if you're in love. And the, the reason a lot of Christians who say they love God don't have grace, mercy, and truth is because they are not, uh, I mean, grace, mercy, and peace is because they're not living in the truth. Look, what did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman at the well when she was talking about worshiping on this mountain or on that mountain? You remember what God said? God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I mean, when we're walking in truth, we're walking with the Lord. It's through truth that we know God's will. It's through truth that we know God's heart. It's through truth that we know how to pray according to God's will. And what did John tell us last week? If we pray according to God's will, what's going to happen? We're going to get our prayers answered. So only when you're walking in truth do you get your prayers answered. And so uh, he says in verse number four, he, he kind of he's going to start tying these truth and love together. He says, I have greatly rejoiced that I have found some of you walking in truth as, as we receive the commandment from the Father. Now, what's the commandment from the Father? That we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, he didn't say, I rejoice greatly that I found all of you walking in truth. He didn't say that I found many of you walking in truth, that I found most of you walking in truth. I mean... He says, I found some of you walking in truth. And I probably could say the same thing about this church. I found some of you walking in truth. But give John the credit here. I mean, he sees the glasses as half full, and he rejoices that at least some of them are walking in truth. In every Bible-believing church, every church that teaches the Word of God, there are people that listen to the truth and walk in the truth, and there are people that don't listen. I don't know why they come. They don't listen. And, and, and there are other people who listen, but they never walk in the truth. And so, if you want grace and mercy and peace, 
You have to walk in truth. You know, I can spot the people who aren't walking in the truth of God because they don't, you, you don't see grace in them. You don't see mercy in them. And you certainly don't see peace in them. If you're walking in this word, if you're hearing this word and believing this word and taking this word to heart and being obedient to this word, I've got news for you. You're going to be receiving a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, and a lot of peace. And you're going to be known by that. So uh, that makes sense because walking in truth and walking in love are the same thing as walking in the Spirit. We talk about walking in the Spirit all the time. We see that in Paul's letters over and over again about walking in the Spirit. It's the same thing. Why is it the same thing? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and the Spirit is the Spirit of love. And so, so uh, if we're walking in the Spirit, we are walking in truth. We're walking in love. And that's why you have to be in the truth. If you're not in the truth, if you're not taking this truth to heart, if we're not obedient to the truth, then we're not going to be filled with the Spirit of God. We, we have to take these precepts and we have to take these precepts to heart and we have to walk in these precepts that God has given us. If all we're doing is hearing these things and, we're, and they're not changing our life, then we're not going to have grace, mercy, and peace because we're not going to be full of the Spirit because the Spirit of truth and the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit are the same thing. And He's also the Spirit of love. And so if you're walking in truth, then you're going to be walking in love. That's why John says in the next few verses, look at verses 5 and 6. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though as I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now that's that same commandment John loves to give us. He wrote about it uh, in John chapter 14 when when uh, he was writing the words of Jesus, but he took those words to heart. He wrote about it in 1 John, and now he's writing about it again in 2 John. He's the apostle of love. And he says, I plead with you, as, as that, he, that he says, not as though I write to you a new commandment to you, but that which we have from the beginning, that we should love one another. But watch what he says in verse number 6. He says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. In other words, you can say you love God. You can talk about love all you want. You can have, a God, I mean, you can have phileo love and you can have eros love, but you're not going to have agape love unless you're walking in his commandments. And let me put it another way. Unless you're walking according to his truth. You can't have love without truth. Then he goes on, he says, this is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should so walk in it. Really, he's talking about two commandments here. They're the same commandment because they end up saying the same thing. But he's talking about the commandment Jesus gave that we're to love one another, but he's also talking about the commandment that he gave, that the Father gave through Jesus, and that is that we're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You got to keep both of those commandments in order to have this mercy, peace, and and uh, grace that he's talking about. In order to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, and and you got to be on your toes. You got to be on your toes because there is so much deception out there. There are so many people out there who distort the Word of God. Look at verse number seven. He says in verse number seven, he says. 
For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, how do we spot them? They do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, if you were to ask a Mormon, did Jesus Christ come? They would say yes. If you would ask a Jehovah's Witness, did Jesus Christ come? They would say yes. But not, they wouldn't mean it or, or interpret that the same way you and I do. He came as a baby. He was the firstborn. But he, they don't see him as coming as God, as God coming in the flesh, as Emmanuel. So, so they see that totally different. And this is a deceiver and an antichrist. And there are many antichrists out there. There are all sorts of false teachers. There are all sorts of false religions, uh, very cunningly uh, importing all sorts of doctrinal error. And so we have to be really careful. And the easiest way we can spot an antichrist, the easiest way we can uh, spot error is by examining someone's Christology. You want to know what somebody believes, then, then learn about their Christology. What do they believe about Jesus Christ? If they present him as anything less than Almighty God, who came in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, who now lives in us by the Spirit, then they're deceivers. They're antichrists, and so you want to stay as far away from them as you possibly can. Now, the most blatant or most common antichrist of our day are the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness. And uh, at the heart of their era is their belief about, their false beliefs about Jesus Christ. And it affects everything they do. And in so many ways, if you listen to them, read their books, talk to them, they blaspheme Jesus Christ. They blaspheme Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons aren't the only ones with a false Christology. False Christologies have made its way into all sorts of mainstream denominations. And, and uh, let me just give you some examples. Uh, there are certain mainstream denominations that, that deny the necessity of the new birth. They don't believe that Christ comes to live in you when you get saved. And, and so uh, they deny the need for the Holy Spirit. So they have what Paul calls a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And so uh, that is antichrist. Now, when they say you don't need Christ in you, you understand how that comes from a tainted Christology. Because what they don't understand is what Paul told us in the book of Colossians chapter 1. It's Christ in you, your hope of glory. In other words, you, there's no way that you can be sanctified and you can be glorified. There's no way you can be redeemed without Christ in you. And there's no way Christ can redeem you unless he is who? unless he is God Almighty. And so we, our theology demands that Christ is in us. Hey, not just my theology, 
I know myself well enough to know without Christ, I'm nothing. Without Christ, there's no way I'm going to be sanctified. Without Christ, there is no way I'm going to be glorified. There's no way I'm going to be able to stand before God in glory, a sinless person, without God doing a work in my heart. And so when you deny the necessity of that, what they will tell you is that Christ has done all he's going to do for you. He died on a cross and that's it. And so you've got to suck it up now and you've got you've to live life the way you're supposed to live life if you want to get, make it to heaven. But I don't see myself as my hope. I see Christ, my God, my Savior, the eternal God and eternal life as my only hope. And if Christ is not in me, I have no hope. And so it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. And anybody that denies that is anti-Christ. And I don't care, you know, what if they call themselves evangelicals or what the name of their church is, if they deny the necessity of Jesus Christ in you, then they are antichrist. There's several denominations out there in churches that will tell you that you've got to add some kind of work to grace, that grace is not enough. In other words, they'll say that if you're not saved until you're baptized, uh, you're dunked, you're baptized with a water baptism, that you're not saved. Or that if you don't worship on Saturday, then you're not saved. If you don't take communion, uh, or it's part of the communion is part of what saves you, your confession is part of what saves you. Do you understand what that type of heresy is rooted in? It's rooted in a bad Christology. Because a good Christology says that Christ is sufficient for me. He is all sufficient for me. And if you don't understand that that blood that was shed on the cross is all sufficient, why is it all sufficient? Because it's the blood of God that came down that cross. And it's sufficient for all things. And if you don't understand that, then you've got a false Christology. If you start trying to add something to the blood of Christ, then you're kind of trampling on the blood because you don't understand just whose blood that is. That's Christ's blood. It's Christ's blood that covers me, that cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And so you see errors in, in, uh, in, in all sorts of ways, and, and you can always root that error in a bad Christology. So stay away from any teachers or any denominations that deny the deity of Christ and his omnipotence, his power his power to save, his power to sanctify, his power to glorify. And, and he, says, he says in the next verse, which verse do we leave off at? Verse number eight. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. In other words, here's what I want you, first of all, let me ask this. What did the apostles work for? They had worked for the truth, the truth that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. They had worked for that truth. They had worked for that truth that it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. And so they say, look to yourselves. Look within. You have an anointing, and you know all things, that we, the apostles, don't lose the things that we've worked for. Take care of what we've given you. We've given you the truth that will get you saved, the truth that will keep you saved. 
And so be careful that you hang on to that truth so that we don't lose our full reward. What's their full reward is to see you and I glorified. John's full reward was to see his congregation glorified, to see this other church, to see all the children in that church glorified. That was his goal. That was his full reward. And, and so he says, look within. You've got an anointing. Think things through. When you hear some kind of doctrine that doesn't sound right to you, look within. Study yourselves. You have an anointing and you know all things. And so you can find the truth. It's there for you. And then in verse number 9, he says in verse number 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, he does not remain in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. You catch that? Pretty stern warning right there. Whoever transgresses and does not remain from now on. In other words, if you walk away from this truth, you look within and you know if you have the truth in you. You know that you're born again. Whoever transgresses and doesn't remain in that truth, who somehow is taken away by error, doesn't have God, never had God. Because if you have God, you know truth and you know all things. You have an anointing. He says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So he's never been truly saved. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has. Not will have one day, but has. For how long? Forever, both the Father and the Son. You look within. Do you have Christ? Is Christ in you? I mean, is it Christ the one who is sanctifying you? Or are you trying to sanctify yourself by your religion and your works? Look within. If it's Christ who is sanctifying you, he's the one who abides in you, and the doctrine of Christ abides in you, guess what? You have both the Father and the Son. So what he's saying is if your Christology is right, hey, you're, you're going to live forever. You have both the Father and the Son. If your Christology is wrong, you don't have God, and you are still a transgressor. You are still in your sins. You're still missing the mark. Whoever transgresses, he misses the mark. And, he, and, he, and, he, and he, he won't remain in the doctrine of Christ. He'll be steered away. And if you, if, but if you remain, if you abide in it, because you have Christ in you, then you have the Father and the Son, because as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You have us both. And no one comes to the Father except by me, the real me, the right me. You gotta have you gotta have the right Christ there to come to the Father. You gotta understand that Christ is God Almighty, that He's the great I am. And it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, back kind of the theme of what we're looking at today, uh, verses 10 and 11, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Well, he doesn't really mean that. And you can come up, you can read all sorts of commentaries and They'll tell you, it doesn't really mean that the way it reads. You know what? Whenever I look at a text, I take it the way it reads. Now, in the Greek, it reads the same way. If anyone, what's, any, what's anyone in the Greek mean? Anyone. Comes to, 
to you and does not bring this doctrine, does not come with a right Christology. They come to you with a bad Christology. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. If you do, look at what it says. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, I didn't make this up. Don't get mad at me if you don't like what I'm saying here. I'm just reading right now. But its I don't think it can be any clearer than the way John presents this right here. If anyone, anyone, any antichrist, any false teacher, false witness comes knocking on your door, you're not to receive them in your house or greet them. And if you do greet them and you receive them in your house, you share in their evil. Now, let's talk about that just a minute. Does that mean I can't be friends with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness? That I can't invite one of them to my home? No, it doesn't mean that. doesn't mean that. If you've got a Mormon neighbor and you want to invite them over to your house for dinner, and, and that's fine. You want to invite them over to your house for dinner, there's no problem with that. The minute they begin to try, start sharing their false doctrine, you kick them out. I mean, very rudely, you kick them out. Or kindly, you kick them out. And if they come, if a Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses or any other false cult comes to your door with their false doctrine, you're not to greet them. You're not to let them into your home. You can be friends with those people on a, at, at, the work, at, at your workplace. You can be friends with them in your neighborhood. But if they're out promoting proselytizing their false Christ, you've got to kick them out of your home. You don't even greet them because if you do, then you share in their evil deeds. Now, how do you share in their evil deeds? Because let me tell you what, when you bring them into your home, you know what I did for those Jehovah's Witnesses in that illustration I gave you at the beginning of this message? I gave them credibility. When I invited them into my home, I gave them credibility. I made them feel really good. When they, when they rattled my theological cage, they felt really good. They, they felt like they really had the right stuff because they could see, they could see the, the strange look on my face when they started confusing me or the confused look on my face. And so I gave them credibility. And, and you know what else? When you invite them to your home... You give them boldness. You give them boldness to go to somebody else's home. Now, you might be able to bring them into your home, and you might be able to argue with them theologically, and you might be able to win a theological debate with them. But let me tell you what, you're not going to convert them. Only God can convert them. And I'm going to tell you what, when they're out there blaspheming Jesus Christ, they're going to have a hard time getting converted. And they've they've heard all the debates, and they've got all the little canned answers, and they're going to be able to answer you, and they're probably going to put you into a into a uh, they're going to uh, they're going to put you into a state of confusion too, because they're pretty good at it. And I'm not saying you ought to be afraid of them, but when you let them in your home and you go into these arguments with them, you're not going to you're not going to convert them. You're not going to win the argument, and you're going to give them boldness to go to your next door neighbor's home, and they might end up making him part of their cult because of the boldness you gave them as they traveled next door to, to, to witness to this, this, your neighbor next door. 
And so we're not to let them into our home. And, you know, if you're a weak believer, I tell you what, you definitely don't want to let them in your home. If you're a new Christian, you definitely don't want to let them in your home because they're going to they, they're they're cause you to doubt. Now, it turned out to be a really good thing for me because I, I tell you what, it was, I, in fact, I found a little folder where I had made my notes when this happened uh, just the other day because we are getting ready to move and I was going through my stuff and I found it there and I had this folder of about 30 pages of notes I made on the deity of Christ. It made me go and back up what I knew was in my heart about Jesus Christ. It gave me the impetus to go out and develop my Christology where I could defend my faith from then on out. So it was a kind of a good thing, but it was wrong in the sense that I did give these guys credibility and I did give them the boldness to go on and, and witness to others. So when they come to your home, when a deceiver, an antichrist comes to your home, uh, proselytizing, uh, promoting their false Christ, the best thing for you to do is kindly bid them farewell. Some, now, the obvious question that would come up in somebody's mind is that love. Let me tell you what. The most loving thing you can do to somebody who's on their way to hell is to let them know they're on their way to hell. And when a Jehovah's Witness now comes to my door or a Mormon comes to my door, I immediately tell them that the doctrine that you, the false doctrine that you are promoting is a doctrine that will, if you don't get your doctrine straight, it will lead to you spending eternity in hell. And they immediately leave after I say that. <laughs> and I don't do it in meanness or to get them away. I do it because I want to get right to the point. You're, you're, preaching, you're an antichrist. You're preaching false doctrine, and you're going to end up in hell if you don't get your doctrine straight. And I always, you know what I, I, I add to that, you get before the Lord. You get before God, and you say, God, show me truth. And, and, and if I can get that far with them, you get before the Lord, and you say, God, show me truth. And if what I'm teaching is there, you show me. I say, God will show you, if you're willing to submit to that truth. But you never, that's about as far as you can get with them. But I don't bring them to my house and argue with them anymore. So anyway, that's what John tells us to do. The last verse. The last verse, or last couple of verses here. He says, he says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do it with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy might be full. The children of your elect sister, your church here in Ephesus, the elder, the apostle John, greet you. Amen. You know how John's joy was made full? By fellowshipping face to face with born again believers in truth and in love. That's what a true church is all about. You know, if we examine ourselves here at Calvary Chapel, that's what we want to test. Are we a church that's marked by truth, not truth only, but truth and love? Not love only, 
but truth and love. Hopefully that's what we are, and hopefully we can keep it that way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the truth that we have in your word about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, how God would empty himself. You would empty yourself, Lord, of all your glory and come to this earth as a little babe in Bethlehem to die for our sins, to live in our hearts so that we can be sanctified. Lord, so that one day we can be glorified and spend eternity forever with you. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given us, the anointing that you've given us to recognize truth, that you are the true God and eternal life. We just thank you, Lord, for all you teach us through your word. We thank you again most of all for the blood that was shed for us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.